we want to help decision makers to make better decisions, but yeah. we also we don't want to make the impression that we are doing some magic. It's a science and it's not pointless them at this range. Hello everyone, welcome to the Data Scientist Show. Today we have Ramin Crispin. Ramin leads the data science and engineering team at Apple Finance Decision Support. He uses advanced statistical and machine learning models to help leadership make better decisions. He is also an open source contributor and the author of hands-on time series analysis with R and several R packages for time series analysis and machine learning applications. He has a master's degree in applied econometrics. Today, we'll talk about time series, open source, ML ops, and his career journey. If you have been enjoying the show, subscribe to the channel, and I'll appreciate it if you give me a five-star review. Welcome to the show, Remy. Thank you for having me here, Eliana. Uh, you have a background in econ, actual science. How did you get into data science? Uh, that's a, uh, a long story. Uh, back then, when I was in my second year of my degree, I had to kind of like start to look the path where I want to go. And a friend told me uh, that his friend from McKenzie is looking for a data scientist to his team and asking, what is a data scientist? I didn't know. It was not as common today. And I bought a book. Uh, I started to read about it and you mentioned it's a lot of uh, regression analysis, classification, building models. And it was like what I learned in economics and actual science, all the statistics. Yeah. And from there, uh, I got thinking into it. I bought the book, Introduction to Data Science. It was, I still feel it's a very common book uh, that give you the kind of like the concept. Mm -hmm. uh, I got really deep into it and here we are. <laughs> yeah. So you already have a background in statistics from your previous degree and then you learned more um, hands-on experience from just uh, self-learning, uh, including like coding, machine learning. Yeah, and while I was the student, I worked in a several uh, research assistant roles that uh, required me to code a lot. So, uh, you know, I started with uh, in the econ department where I got exposed to Steta, mm -hmm. which is uh, very common in econ, Yeah, uh, less common in industry-wise. Uh, but then some professor told me, maybe you should look at R. Mm. And I took the, you know, the very common uh, course in Coursera by John Hopkins. And uh, from there, I started to apply it on my research assistant work. Uh, and by the time I graduated from my degree, I had a decent programming background that I could start work as a data scientist. Mm. Okay, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And can you tell us what did you do in your first job as a data scientist? Yeah, so after my graduation, I started to work at Ernst & Young, the consulting company at the advanced analytic section. There was, I know that's one of the great things about working in consultant that uh, you're, it's very flexible. You are moving from projects and I got exposure to different uh, domain areas. So the first was uh, I did like, I built classification models for fraud detection for a large uh, automobile company that was our client and then I got into forecasting so my second big project was developing uh, forecasting models with the uh, time series 
traditional statistics and machine learning models. And this is where I took my academic background. I had just, you know, just a basic academic background and got into it. And for one year, I just spent on developing models. And uh, that was kind of like where I can say I fell in love in time series. Yeah. Uh, and since then, I'm, I'm doing a lot of time series. That's uh, where I started. Yeah. Um, I think my first project is also time series. I think people don't talk a lot about time series, but it's actually uh, very useful. And it doesn't have to be very complicated when you just start it. If you just start thinking about trends, it could be a linear model and plus yeah. seasonality. So I'm curious, comparing your first time series model versus the time series model used today, what has changed I think I went through the journey that most of the data scientists uh, go at the beginning. They try to do complex stuff, mm -hmm. to throw XGBoost, to throw <laughs> deep learning. Yeah. Uh, and over time, you realize that for the simple problem, uh, if you know, linear regression could do the same work, if not better. Um, I use the approach that I typically, I when I develop uh, time series models, I do horse racing between multiple approaches uh, depending on the context and the business problem and the type of the data um, evaluate which one uh, work better using backtesting which is the time series equivalent for the machine learning mm -hmm. uh, cross validation uh, and based on kind of like the, you know the experiment that I'm doing with it I can decide in production what are the main models that I'm going to focus uh, and you know, scale it up. Typically, it's not just forecasting one time series, but is hundreds, if not more. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned uh, the uh, back testing, uh, which is equivalent to cross validation in other machine learning methodologies. Can you share a little more about the back, uh, the best practices around it? Yeah. Uh, so. Back testing essentially it's you splitting the data into multiple training and testing partition where um, you know like in machine learning you are training on the training and evaluate the performance on the testing. The main difference that uh, time series it is sequential data. It's you're not doing a random uh, splitting. Yeah. Technically you can do in some condition, but in most cases you don't want to do uh, random, but uh, to some window function that goes split into um, different training uh, and then leave some room for testing. Mm -hmm. And based on this, you you are you can evaluate how a couple of things. First, you want to evaluate how the model perform with the data that the model didn't see in the training. So it gives you indication how well the model will uh, perform in the future, in the actual forecast. The other thing that you want to evaluate is in some cases your data is keep changing. Uh, some of the structure um, could be some event or break, structural break and you want to see which model can handle changes best. So it's also depending on the context but there's some few cases that you will can benefit from backtesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah and uh, in terms of time series data you mentioned the data can often change. It's um, and how do you handle, you know, data drift? Yeah, so there are like in time series, you, so time series come with in what we call the structural or the building components, which is the trend you mentioned before, mm -hmm. the seasonality. 
and the rest is usually like the random component is like the all the things that are not filled by the seasonality and the trend uh, and there is common changes in time series could be that you have a shock structural break so let's say like a covid you saw the what happened to the unemployment that you mm-hmm. see like a actual shift up yeah uh, and then you can do some add some uh, variables like indicator that uh, will tell the model hey from this point there is a new state let's take into into mm-hmm. account um, this is where regression come very handy and the traditional time series model it's out for them to the one that cannot get inputs they just use strictly the uh, historical this is where they typically will fail could be like uh, special events outliers that you also want to flag them with the flag indicator, mm-hmm. one out and coding. And it could be that you have like a seasonal events that occur multiple, you know, once a year or more than once in a year, but not necessarily at the same time. And a good example is Easter. Mm-hmm. Easter occur every year in a different date as opposed to Christmas, where which occur right. 25, 24 is the eve, 25. Mm-hmm. New Year's Eve is the, you know, 31st yeah. and 1st of January. So this is where it's a, you want to use some indicator. There is other more complex uh, methods, but that's kind of like the uh, natural uh, methods. Yeah. yeah, in my first project, I have to, I work for a company that dealing with airport traffic. So we need to look at Thanksgiving. And like you mentioned, it's a certain week of the year. It's not a specific date. So I think when we took measure of the data, you need to do some transformation and some part of it, uh, you need to change to like which week it is yeah. instead of uh, a certain day. Sometimes you just wish, can you just define all the holidays on a specific day of the year? It would be... That will make data science life so much yeah. easier. And also like daylight saving. I don't know if does that affect that's a painful when you have hourly data (laughs) and then you suddenly see like a day that your data is dropping to like one hour it's dropping to zero because this is like the data uh and again like there are ways to handle it uh there is leap year which is annoying Mm -hmm. at least it used to be annoying in in the old format that i used in r uh today it's it's much more easy to handle it with the different uh, classes yeah there are a lot of caveats and small stuff, but it's it kind of like you learn it really fast when you work with the data. I wrote a package about uh, taking data from SFO mm-hmm. passenger. So yeah. uh, if you are into airports and travels, there is a nice time series data. Mm-hmm. It's uh, typically like the academic data that it's really, you see like the nice seasonality. Yeah. And if you want to learn how to model, it's a good place to start until COVID hit mm-hmm. the... Yeah, the world and then you see like the drop in the uh, number of passengers mm-hmm. and this is another topic like how to model shocks and this is you know the uncertainty is increasing now you handle stuff that you cannot derive from uh, your past data your historical mm-hmm. so it's an interesting problem yeah can you tell us more about this problem so there is some cases that uh, like the you know if you look at the passengers data in not necessarily uh, flights, but trends and this type of problem, you will see that the COVID, uh, there was a significant drop. So typically you will see the drop and then there is some recovery. I didn't look at the data in the last few months. I guess there is some recovery, but still it's not going to the um, normal state. 
So there are a couple of things depending on the business problem that you are trying to solve. I, f- I feel like that in the, in the context, if I would be the airlines company, I would want to know how much I lost. So you can go and the point before the COVID hit, do a forecast of the pre-COVID and take the actuals and do the diff. So we kind of like estimate of how many mm-hmm. revenue lost. You want to know when, like in the case that, you know, we cannot know how the COVID will continue to affect. Right. So it's very hard to predict, but what you can do, you can help to build scenario case, like mm. what if, and this is where you can use different splines uh, to add to the data and to simulate different, different sp- splines. Yes. Yeah, spines uh, mm-hmm. regression. Yeah. And essentially it's like, you are learning, let's say that you have a curve that's going down. So mm-hmm. you learn how the velocity of the curve. Okay. And if you had a breakpoint, so you can start learn the recovery, but then the recovery could be long mm-hmm. or short. Yeah. So you can say, I, I learned the slope down and up, and I want to say that the recovery up will take a few months or years. And based on this, you set your spline. Mm-hmm. So you can build different scenarios and, and provide, in this case, it would be the airlines company that would want to know like how it's going to affect, for example, their revenue, how much they need to invest in aircraft. And I can think about all, any other scenario. Yeah. You can provide multiple scenarios about how would it affect without really know the data. It's more like business insight. So this mm-hmm. is where I feel like the integration between data scientists and business analysts is a, you know, uh, the point that you build models that not necessarily derive out of data, mm. but from insights. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I think it's interesting you mentioned that you go back to look at the data and compare to see what's the impact. I think when you solve those type of problems, your background in um, uh, econometrics definitely comes in and that's helpful. Uh, because you have to think about certain causal relationships. Yeah. It's hard to uh, evaluate causal relationships. So can you tell us how do you combine, um, you know, causal inference and uh, time series in order to drive insights, especially try to understand what actually happened? Yeah, so I feel like a regression is the first, my first to go that where you for example if you have a let's say that you you have some data set uh, that you have some shock mm-hmm. and you want to measure the shock so running a regression having some um, flag variable that you put zero uh, elsewhere and just in the shock you set it as one and you then you can quantify the the weight of this shock and you can go to the decision maker and say if I will have this shock in the future, that's, that's how I, I feel the impact could be. Now, there is more, uh, you know, color for this. You can uh, take the, you, you know, when you're running regression, you get the standard deviation and you can do some simulation and, mm-hmm. and give range. Uh, this is another reason I love uh, regression uh, that enable you to do not just point estimate, but also give range. And I feel like as a data scientist, always... I feel like that, you know, you should never build prediction without prediction interval. That's uh, confidence interval. Yeah, yeah, because this is, you know, it's you educate people to think that you are doing magic, and we are right. not. We are, you know, mm-hmm. well, there is some limitation for what we can do. We want to help 
decision makers to make better decisions, but yeah. we also we don't want to make the impression that we are doing some magic. Mm-hmm. It's a science and it's not point estimate, it's a range. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a great point. And when I build my time series model, I remember the forecasting, the range is getting really wide, especially after a certain period. So how do you uh, tackle that problem? Um, so that's, that's, this is where I feel like there's some models, like if you use linear model, it won't give you this, this Im- impact. Yeah. Because the growth is of, of, it's linear and doesn't take into account the time. If you use Arima, you will get this mm-hmm. impact because the model take, in, take into account the variation that created by the time. Um, you know, sometimes it looks scared for different stakeholders when they see a wide confidence interval, so yeah. they're getting wide. But I feel like that's kind of like if you expand, you know, you are quantify the uncertainty that will occur as time passes by, it makes more sense and it's hard to, um, you know, accept it or live with it as opposed to just, you know, throwing uh, these wide conference intervals. Yeah. And uh, um, in, when we talk about causal inference, I think about experimentation. Uh, I think in grad school, I learned a method called longitudinal study. However, I never actually used that in my professional work. So I wonder, have you ever had projects where you design a longitudinal study or look at time series and then design experimentation um, using time series data? No, I, I know longitudinal. Uh, I think that I, it's something I, I worked on my when I was a research assistant mm-hmm. I didn't since then I didn't have time to or opportunity to work on such a problem I'm more on the predictive side like uh, creating focus but that's a, a whole topic by itself and it's super interesting it's more I feel it's more related to uh, experiment with uh, uh, trials uh, clinical trials mm-hmm. and um, you know I'm sure there are other uh, area, but it's a super interesting problem. Yeah. And uh, in your book, Hands-On Time Series Analysis, I think the keywords are hands-on because I remember when I was in grad school, uh, when I learned time series, probably spent more than 60% of the time derived, uh, try to prove the ARIMA function, derive everything. And uh, can you tell us what some specific um, advice or best practices you want to share in terms of um, applying time series yeah. in our projects? Yeah, I feel I feel like the you know my approach when I wrote the book was nail down the stuff that I felt that was missing. Yeah, which is the data. Mm-hmm. How you handle data? <laughs> right. How, like most of the time, we're like we people, don't need data. We just need a formula. Yeah, in, people in people school. think people think that you know the data is there and and yeah. it's just coming clean. But mm-hmm. most of the time, I feel like data, most data scientists will spend about getting the data and cleaning it and understanding before the modeling. And the modeling is the easy part. Yeah. Uh, once you know, it's also experience, but like modeling in this process is the easy part. Yeah. I feel like the data is easily the challenge and. So I, I wrote out of the pain that I felt that I had in, in, in the past about, you know, the basic stuff, like when you are pulling data, how to reformat it, how to, you know, bring it to the format, how to aggregate it, uh, how to read it, and this type of uh, kind of like tricks about, you know, the timestamp and working with the time object. And so before talking about models, I just, spend a lot of time talking about the different classes in R and 
uh, then moving to the models. And I also love to do the, the you know, the derivative, derive the models and write them from scratch. I mm-hmm. feel like it's much more, uh, I used to spend, spend a lot of time in the past doing it. Unfortunately, today I don't have <laughs> the, you know, the time to go and derive any model that yeah. I'm working with. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's super important. Mm-hmm. To understand the theory, yeah. yeah. Um, so now with uh, deep learning, a lot of people also use uh, recurrent neural work, LSTM, when it comes to time series problems. So how do you compare that to, you know, ARIMA or uh, regression models? I think that this type of models, anything that is without, you know, uh, not the traditional time series models are... Their potentials is where you have a lot of features. Mm-hmm. And this is where I feel, for example, using regression, when you have like, I don't know, 300, 300 features, uh, it's not the right way because like your ability to filter the features and doing some feature selection is limited. And where mm-hmm. I, f- I feel that deep learning or, you know, basic uh, you know regression, um, machine learning regression models could do better work. I feel this is where you want to try those type of models. Um, one of the hardest things to work with time series data, and I feel like it's a big misconception that you can just come, you know, if you're trying to predict the electricity, usually will people ask you, did you use weather data or did you use um, temperature or anything like this? And mm-hmm. in reality, you probably won't use it because uh, you need to forecast also this for your forecast. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So let's say that you are trying to, you have a, a time series of the consumption of electricity. I actually have a example that I build uh, about the US electricity forecast mm-hmm. and you want to forecast the next uh, month. Yeah. Hourly data. Now, weather playing big impact is impacting you know there is a high correlation between the weather and the consumption and if you really want to know if you want to use it as the input you need also to know what is going to be the weather in the next 28 days and it's very hard to predict uh, weather for the next right. 28 days yeah. accurately so you're adding a lot of noise, noise yeah. and also you are there is a problem that you are typically what people would do would train their models with the actuals and with actual weather data, but they in the forecast mm. they will use a prediction that non necessarily is as the same accuracy as the right. actuals. So you 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 may add more noise to it. Yeah, it's like if you want to use the data, you almost uh, have to train uh, some sort of uh, kind of latent model. Right, yeah. you're using whether I can use the weather from last month to predict some electricity, you know, one month later, but not that yeah, same so month. Yeah, so that's that's I feel like that in a short term, probably if you're using legs it's mm-hmm. of weather that you still don't need to to do the forecast. Yeah, it makes sense. Right, but once you need to create a forecast, and this is where it could be challenging and become it could be like a project by itself to. to predict the, right. the forecast, the weather, yeah. temperature ones. 
Yeah, that's such a good call out because if you think about, I have some Kaggle project, I have all the data ready. I just need to split the data based on time using the back testing method you mentioned, and I don't even need to think about whether the weather data is available because it's there for the exercise. Um, but when you're dealing with the actual data, um, sometimes maybe there are variables that are highly correlated to uh, the variable of interest, but because of they won't be available yeah. in the time of production. So it's actually not very valuable to use that. For as a data scientist, we always want to use as, as many, many variables as possible. So sometimes it's really hard to decide, oh, I have to drop that. <laughs> yeah, so I feel that's kind of like when you start, you have this, you know, you imagine the world that you're going to have a lot right. of features, but you end up that you typically will create a lot of features out mm -hmm. of this local data yeah, uh, and use this. Uh, as opposed to use external uh, regressor uh, as inputs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. What are some other things that you think we need to pay attention to in time series? You know, like ab ability to to scale up. Typically, today in most industry problems, you want to be able to scale up your problem. Mm. You may not have one series that you want to focus so you need to think about how should you approach uh, when you have, you know, like in Kaggle, like the M M5 competition is a good example where they did a prediction of, I think, Walmart uh, stores, sales in different, in three different states. And it's a thousand of, of series. So if you're going to the route of, let's say deep learning that is a heavy computational mm -hmm. uh, process, you need to take into account that you're also going to need some resource, mm. computational resource that are expensive. Yeah. Uh, and the question that you need to ask yourself, what is the business problem that you are trying to solve? Mm -hmm. uh, and does it justify to spend, like what is, you know, you need to think about the ROI of your model. Right. If it costs more than the value that it brings, then maybe it's not the right approach. Mm -hmm. But in, in you know, there are some cases that accuracy, you know, to be the most accurate is super important. And this is where maybe you should spend those resources. In other cases, they just the business want to know the growth. Yeah. Uh and you have like a I don't know, ten thousand or one thousand series. So you mm -hmm. probably want to think about you know also resources. Yeah. Um and, the ROI and the resources. Yeah. And, and yeah, scaling up, I feel, is the very important thing to know in, in time series because like as time passed by, time series, I feel like it's become like more common yeah. data format because, you know, everything around us capturing yeah. data, all digital and uh, our ability, we have ability to observe a lot of data. Mm -hmm. We have less ability to process it. Yeah. And time series is one of those examples. If I need to guess, time series is the most common for data format. It's also the, I don't know, maybe just my bias. I think it's the most fun because you can visualize that even before you do some analysis sometimes. Yeah, right? I, I love, <laughs> I wrote a package just for data visualization of time series. Okay. I, I, Tell us more about it. I It's uh, the TS Studio. Mm -hmm. Um. This is where I, you know, back when I was at Ernst & Young, um, I, I had a goal to learn how to write package. I set it as a goal. And I felt like I was working in one project 
and I, I'm copying past the function from the previous project. So I realized, yeah. you know, why don't I take it as some kind of like a fun project for myself, mm-hmm. general, generalize the process. Yeah. Um, I use Plotly as the visualization, so it, mm-hmm. it is interactive. And I started to build those functions. And I remember working for the first iteration. I feel like that, you know, that's kind of like as a really junior data scientist, open source contributor mm-hmm. that I work, I feel like for a couple of months until I release something. Yeah. Uh, the second iteration I wrote on a 12 hour flight. Mm. Uh, and that's kind of like was like a big lesson learned for me that don't try to make stuff perfect. They will never be perfect. It's right. better to have more frequent releases, mm-hmm. get feedback from the community. It's part of being community. The, the, you know, that's what's great about the open source community. People will come and help you and guide you and provide feedback. Yeah. Uh, and it was a learning journey. I think a lot of stuff that I learned was by just writing uh, code, uh, building libraries, contributing mm-hmm. to the open source. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Uh, I want to ask more about your contribution to the open source community later. Um, and for now, can you tell us what was the vis- data visualization library you created that's different than other you know, general data visualization library? Um, I feel first it was in our, most of the data visualization libraries for time series are based on the ggplot. Yeah. ggplot... I, th- I think it's one of the best data visualization period. Yeah. It's amazing. Like if you go and, and see uh, hashtag tidy Tuesday, what people are doing there, uh, it's blow my mind. Like in the context of time series, when you are doing time series analysis, uh, often you want to dive into the data and this is the, the and zoom in, then this is the limitation of, ggplot in my mind that it's not interactive mm-hmm. and plotly provide this functionality that let's say that you have electricity data yeah. of hourly and you will plot it in non-interactive you will, you will your screen will be dense from points that it's very hard to understand and if mm-hmm. you just want to see one event what happened there or if you have some spike you cannot it's how to do it uh just looking at the plot, you can see the range of the date, mm-hmm. but in, with interactive, you can just over and see the date yeah. and maybe do an additional dive in. So that's what, that's bought me. Yeah. And that was why I decided, I think since then, most of the packages that I wrote, I'm using Plotly mm-hmm. uh, for the exact same reason. Yeah. What is the name of your package? Or oh, we want to check it out. So that's packages. I'm, unfortunately, I, 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 I stopped maintaining it okay. because of a variety of reasons. Yeah. Uh, it's still there. It's still mm-hmm. people down. I surprise when I see that it's still relatively. Yeah. Uh, I think there is a, last time I, I checked, there is a between 3,500 oh, to 4,000 wow. people download yeah. every month. Uh, it's TS Studio. Yes. Uh, when I started, I might envision to build, build it as a interface that you can go and a platform that you mm-hmm. can do like visualization for time series yeah. i never got the time to go and yeah. <laughs> build it so that was the inspiration of ts studio mm. today i probably would call it in a different name today i also you know this this thing that you learn i would do a lot of stuff differently um but it's there uh it's supporting ts object yeah which is all the object in r and some other format uh which I feel like today it's less relevant. So 
if you're looking for other stuff there are more modern stuff that available there if you're yeah. doing using ts objects so probably uh that's the library that you want to use if mm-hmm. if not there is a uh more uh recent uh, packages like like time tk by uh, matt dancho it's a good uh, library uh there's a lot of uh, functionality for visualization also with plotly and ggplot you can select your output mm-hmm. and there is the uh, all the good stuff that the folks from uh, monash university uh, by led by rob professor rob einman mm-hmm. doing the feeble package and all this ecosystem it's also a good uh, place to look at yeah thanks for sharing um i was using ggplot for a time series uh a uh, project I was working on, um, like try to look at the seasonality of the rent price. That was uh, my first tech blog I published on Medium. And I remember there was challenges using ggplot for time series data because of the grid. It's not by the, you know, the seasonality. So I have to do a lot of pr- uh, processing divided by, you know, the month, divided by seven, and it just doesn't yeah. look very pretty with the grid. <laughs> so I think there are some folks that uh, create the extension uh-huh. for, especially for time series with ggplot yeah. that are really beautiful. Like that's what nice about ggplot too, mm-hmm. that it's, you cannot beat how, if for static plot, you can, it's really hard to beat yeah. the, the beauty that you can right. do out of it. Uh, but if you need to do it from scratch, it it might be could be challenging mm-hmm. and more consuming. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you set a goal to create a package. What make you want to set this goal? I felt like when I when I got into the open source, when I started to learn R, uh, I felt it's something you know like you if you want to learn how to write code in R, you need mm-hmm. also to know how to. Yeah write a package I, sh- I i saw you know i saw the value of having package there was someone uh, david robinson is saying is uh is one of the main contributors of our said in past uh, if you are using the same function three times you probably need to write a package <laughs> uh so um it's at the beginning it it's it seems to me like a you know only the the biggest contributors yeah. write package, but then mm-hmm. like when I started, I realized it's so simple to write package. There's so many tools available. Uh, and yeah, I encourage people to go and write their own package and contribute. Oh, wow. That's a, definitely a great experience. Yeah. So when you coach people to write their own package, what is the your best advice for them? Start with simple. <laughs> Don't try to... Uh, if you have a vision about where your package you want to have, uh, doing it in iteration mm-hmm. could be faster than try to make it, you know, like the old features. Um, set milestones, clear milestones. It's very easy to, and from personal experience, to do like a scope creeping yeah. and become greedy to add more features. So if you have vision of what you want to do or what this functionality of this package, you know, go to GitHub, your know, repo, create milestones, uh, try to stick to those milestones uh, and do iteration. That's, I feel like that's the main advice that I would give to people that are just starting to write package. Then the code quality will improve. Like if you don't have much experience, you will, like when I see now <laughs> the code that I wrote, like, 
couple of years so it's it for me it's like wow this is junk <laughs> <laughs> but again like it's uh, you know i'm sure that if i will come in few years and see what the code i'm writing now it will look at me like the, you want to have that's how you measure yourself that you're improving uh so go see what other folks are writing you know what is the working you know, there is a if you're in the R ecosystem there is a great book by idly wickham i feel that most of the folks that write packaging now went through this book it's uh i feel like it's a uh, forgot exact name but it's the R packages or <laughs> the most trivial name for R package uh for book about packages in R. so i recommend to go for this resource and generally there are a lot of resources available uh so just go and dive and just do it yeah just do it and it's not as complicated as uh, uh what you thought it might be and yeah. like you mentioned start small um and then release it get feedback and that's how you iterate yeah and, and then- make sure that you also share it with others like you know mm-hmm. if you're just creating package but you're not doing the pr for the package yeah it's people not aware about what you're doing and then like you're missing audience and missing feedback so also make sure that you are promote your work properly thanks for sharing that and uh so previously you mentioned when you uh decided whether you need to take on the project you look at the resources look at your roi um sometimes it's difficult to measure the roi before we diving into the project so what are some strategies you use to think about the roi of a project i think that generally uh it's derived from the business problem that you are trying to solve remember when i worked at ernst and young there was kind of like you are coming you have you are constrained with number of hours you are constrained with uh, um, resources and you need to figure out with those concerns how you make this project successful mm-hmm. uh so obviously when you have constraint there is you need to scope your work accordingly that um make sure that you can deliver and not try to it's this does thing i feel like to do t-shirt size of your work mm-hmm. and quantify like the time and the resource yeah but it's something that i guess that you can when you, you learn over time with experience mm-hmm. have you encountered the uh, situations where you took on the project you thought it would be a good time series project or other machine learning project but turn out it cannot be solved by data science um is typically you 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 will understand in the beginning when you see the data and i feel like that's my best advice for folks is not to commit if you don't have the data they need try don't commit we're not magician we're not doing magic <laughs> right uh do the limitation of uh if your data i had a professor that used to tell us junk in junk out right if your data is junk yeah. your output will be junk so make sure that you set expectation with the stakeholders mm-hmm. yeah and what are some common mistakes people make in building time series solutions wow probably i did a lot of mistakes i'm trying to think what i <laughs> the stuff that <laughs> I feel like in the beginning, I was building a complex models um that not necessarily you know you need to again going back to you when you're working in a business setting environment, you have a time limit and you need to deliver eventually the model. 
if your if you take any, any each time that you need to refresh your forecast take like a 15 hours because you are trying to run some grid search for tuning parameters yeah. on any possible parameter in the world just to get the, the best model that's probably you know again the question is it tie with your business problem that you are trying to solve mm-hmm. like does uh if running it without with a narrow grid search that will give you let's say five percent uh accuracy versus running it for 20 hours and give you 4.99 does this additional improvement worth yeah. the the time that you spend or not mm-hmm. and I feel like that's where typically I fell in the past and where most of the scientists, you know, I see a lot of a uh, discussion about the accuracy uh, in time series context. Like yeah. uh, accuracy is important, but then yeah. again, like also computational, that's something that I feel that is missing when you are looking at a model um, evaluation metric mm-hmm. there's no like how much time it took to train the model right that's i feel like that should be there uh and what is the lift that it provides in accuracy yeah so it should be like some kind of like a ratio between the accuracy and the time or the mm-hmm. compute power that you spend right and translate it into kind of like does going with between like let's say if your ratio is between you know 1.5 to 1.6 does increment improvement does it worth it mm-hmm. To spend the amount of uh computed you or not again it's tied to the biz problem that you're yeah. trying to solve there are some cases i guess that you really need to be accurate mm-hmm. and you will spend you for all the gpu in the world to be accurate yeah. in other case that's you're not necessarily answering the you know it's not answering the biz problem mm-hmm. that you're trying to solve if you're just trying to understand what will be my friend in the next few years yeah, yeah. so there is trade-off You need to be able to uh not to fall into this trap of the accuracy or the you know trying to solve it with all the possible models and run it on you know like for hours on some server and uh, not necessarily get the best results yeah I think that's a great point I think I also wrote a post about sometimes it's worth to think about is it really worth it? For you to spend another three months to improve one percent of uh, accuracy, sometimes yeah. it is uh, worth it. Uh, if you think about maybe it's related to um, some medical cases or people's life. Um, but sometimes if you are related to a marketing campaign, maybe if you launch today, that will drive more ROI yeah. to the business than improving you know a few decimals. Um, after you spend more time and the resources and uh, I think keep this in mind it's very important I love that you mentioned uh, have some type of ratio uh, keep that in mind and also it's uh, it's difficult uh, to decide when is good enough so for you how do you decide when to stop um Typically, I have a timeline. You know, you have a timeline when you need to deliver the results. So you <laughs> yeah. kind of like need to derive it and you don't right. want to spend the night before mm-hmm. and then like, you know, all the miracles happened when the model failed because the, you know, statistically didn't converge and throw some error and mm-hmm. you need to go to the back. So uh, you want to leave the, you know, to derive your time uh, that you build the robust models that also can deliver a, The, within the time constraint mm-hmm. so that's yeah. the main advice here yeah 
And after you deliver the model, how do you maintain it? This is, I feel like, where we are going to the MLOps. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what drove me to learn more about MLOps. Yeah. Uh, when you want to move away, just, oh, we need to refresh and I want to run it locally on my machine and, yeah. and, and you know, send some CSV. Mm-hmm. But you want to create some more automated and robust way to run the models. Um, so when I, if I need now to build a, a forecasting models, I'm typically in this, in the uh, mindset that it's need to be, to go to production. Yeah. It's need to be on a, you know, according to production standards. Mm-hmm. So when you start, you set a higher standard. Yeah. There is the development, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a scratch when you're doing some kind of like a whiteboarding. Yeah. I would call it. Right. But then like. Once you kind of like figure out the, you know, the best approach, this is where you, know, you need to think how to write code that could mm. go to production. You'll be able to scale it, deploy it, and, you know, reproducibility, mm-hmm. to repeat it, reproduce, reproduce right. results. It's very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think sometimes data scientists kind of have also have this trade-off, especially in the beginning of the project. You're vetting. Sometimes you're vetting a project. You don't know whether... It will work or not. And uh, for some people, they want to, maybe I can just write some scrappy code and then quickly find find out whether it'll work or not before I commit to production. So versus I just always coming, have a higher standard. How do you think about those two approaches? That's a good question. I feel like that there is a, it's a personality thing. Yeah. I have uh, friends that they always, they will take the problem and, you know, from the get-go, they will treat it as a, you know, high standouts. But sometimes that creates some tension with when you have timelines. Mm-hmm. So, like, I've, I always look first about when I need to, sometimes there is, like, if you have some ad hoc request and you have a timeline, so trying to write the code is the most, a uh, clean way might take more time and you cause you to miss some deadline that you don't want. Uh, so I feel like it's a trade-off. Uh, I'm kind of like, you know, if it's ad hoc, I treat it as ad hoc. Yeah. Uh, if it is, you know, that's not ad hoc and this is, I'm t- mm-hmm. this is where from the get-go it's like, let's write it Yeah. the most elegant and clean thinking about all the unit tests that you want to have mm-hmm. and uh, you know should live in some docker environment mm-hmm. and be able to deploy it yeah i agree it d- depends on different cases right sometimes time is a more important factor or uh, maybe the requirement for the code can be a little lower you want to really deliver the insights and sometimes you know for sure we're going to invest in the project it will you know, maybe 80% go into production, then let's have higher standard on the code yeah. to think about uh, production, um, you know, Docker, those environment. Um, and uh, when we talk about ML ops, uh, what is something specific about time series models in ML ops that's kind of people need to pay more attention compared to general ML ops? I can give a specific example from yeah. my, you know, my our world mm-hmm. um, that when I moved to Docker environment, I realized that there are some 
applications that cannot work in Docker because the compilers, they are using some compilers that are not available in, let's say, Ubuntu. Mm. And that's cause problem. There is the, some very famous, I don't want to say the names, but there is a very famous uh, library for forecasting that I feel from a big company that I feel that the authors, when they build it, they build it as a POC. I, I listened to, uh, listened in the past to a podcast that the author that what he say that it was never built for production, but then people are <laughs> using it in, in production and, mm-hmm. and you see it's, it's not, it's falling apart. That's kind of like, like, you know, the, the BSTS library based in structural time series is, is a unique package that I use a compiler. It's a Bayesian model that use uh, underlying libraries that not available. The compilers are not available in Docker, so mm-hmm. you cannot deploy it. And oh, okay. so at the beginning it was like, oh, I'm missing a model. But then over time I realized, okay, it's just, I have so many other models that can work and it's not the end of the world. And um, so like, that's the thing that you need to think about on production. Can you reproduce it or not? Mm-hmm. There are some, like, I feel like that most of the, you need, you need to look at the application that you use. And this is, I feel it's relevant for both R and Python mm-hmm. that most of the code is not native written in, in our Python. Like if you think about, let's say uh, TensorFlow, TensorFlow, it's a good example, or uh, Profit, that they use uh, the uh, TensorFlow, I think they use C or C++. Mm-hmm. So if you're using it in R, you're calling the Python, the Python calls the... <laughs> that's not something you want to go into yeah. production. So mm-hmm. if you really want to use TensorFlow, probably you should not use the R version. You want to go to the, you know, what is it? A, you need to ask yourself, is it the first citizen? Mm-hmm. Python is the first citizen, probably. Yeah. R is not, so in this case, I would not use R. Um, so that's that's a thing that you need to think about when you start to think about production. How it will scale, how it will work in a different environment. Mm-hmm. Can you reproduce it? Um, what are the dependencies and so on? Yeah. And uh, so when you uh, put a model in production and then you can collect more data and to uh, verify your model and measure the impact, can you share... Uh, like how do you measure the impact of the model you build? So typically, I think that the most important is to collect the data after like the realization mm-hmm. of the data and compare how the performance. Uh, and then like you want to do some monitoring. Let's say that if you uh, see that there is some, you set some kind of like a threshold that if the accuracy of the model diverge for some range, you want to set alert and go check it. Uh, it could be that something happened with the data or some event triggering that mm-hmm. you, you know, that you went out of the, your prediction intervals and yeah. you want to flag it or go check it or the model is just not working well. Mm-hmm. So just another, maybe you need to go and think again if the model that you use is the one that you want to use or maybe retrain and, and with different approach. Yeah. So yeah, monitoring, it's very important. Mm-hmm. And uh, what are some best practices in monitoring time series model? So if you have some type of uh, scheduling system Mm -hmm. that go, you you should write some code um, that you go and and pull data and do some of this conflicted diff, compare with your actuals and Mm -hmm. do the comparison and be able to 
trigger alert uh, whether if it's you know there is easy slack as api or you know you know there are different systems that you can yeah. go and send notification i actually in the recent days what i'm trying to work so i have a project that i uh i'm writing a um example of how to deploy machine learning models in production for mm-hmm. educational reasons uh with open source uh i'm using the us electricity demand uh demand for electricity hourly data uh as example where i build infrastructure that use github action to pull the data from the api uh every hour update the dashboard create a forecast Uh, for the next three days of the mm-hmm. consumption and um, every three, d- three days to refresh the forecast so the, the dashboard is refreshed every hour the data the forecast every three days and now what I'm was you know yesterday I was struggling and then I post before in this morning about like for help in Twitter if anybody know how to I want to do the, the monitoring with Twitter. Mm-hmm. So whenever there is a diversion in the forecast, to shoot at Twitter. Yeah. Tweet, tweet about it and say, the forecast, there is some outlier, <laughs> or to shoot an image. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, you know, yesterday I just got the approval for the uh, Twitter API, not the V2, the V1.1. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to enroll and get some approval from uh, Twitter. And that's what I'm working now, like how to oh. exact the same problem, like how to upload the, when you generate the forecast, I want right. to create the ability also to uh, take the image and tweet it and say, this is the forecast for the next three mm-hmm. days. And also uh, one of the things that I'm measuring uh, is the accuracy. So whenever you are diverged from the accuracy to shoot it to Twitter mm-hmm. and say, hey, the, the model is not working. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe there is high consumption, maybe you know it's a odd day or something or mm-hmm. you know a cold or so yeah, that's very interesting. What are some other uh you know fun project or open source project you you worked on um so I want to say it's fun it but fun is probably not the right word more like just interesting interesting yeah it's the covid related uh, mm-hmm. project, so I feel like now it's a We're in February two years ago it's when I started to when the pandemic was only February two years it's I remember I was in traveling to with my kids to Disney World and you know you start to see people with masks and it was yeah. still not here in the US and or not really you know there was more like uh, in China and then Italy Uh, so I, I realized that it might be there is a time series here so I started to build a package yeah uh, at that time it, it the name of the pandemic was coronavirus mm-hmm. it changed I feel like a few months into the pandemic to covid 19 yeah and so it was a big project that started with you know I, I thought maybe it's a time series it's could be because I'm in time series I yeah. love to work with time series I started to script uh scrap the John Hopkins repository mm-hmm. and create a tidy format for the data and I realized really fast that it's probably you know it's not something for time series analysis yeah. or forecasting it's it's pandemic and I saw people doing stuff and I felt that it's not my domain mm-hmm. uh, there's one thing to predict electricity but predict the <laughs> pandemic it's not I didn't have the domain knowledge uh, I, I, I felt like there is a lot of uh, miss 
conception about it, so yeah. I didn't want to, to be part of it. But uh, I wanted to help to scientists or other folks that want to have access to the data and mm-hmm. to the clean data. So it started with the coronavirus um, where I feel like when I learned a lot of stuff about MLOps because of the coronavirus, because the first days I used to refresh manually the data every night. At the beginning, I didn't realize that it's going to be so long. Like yeah. we had two years, <laughs> we're still into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned how to, that's when I learned about GitHub Action. Uh, I learned how to build automation, how to build pipelines with open source tools. Uh, that was a really fun experience to learn it. The one thing that, and it developed to other, other libraries for, uh, for COVID-19 data. Uh, and build on top of it also dashboard that automate every day. So, mm-hmm. and it's one of the things that I'm proud of it. It's like that, you know, it's there for now close to two years. Yeah. Uh, from the moment that I reach to some level of maturity and, and it's in production, it's work like a, you know, like a Swiss clock. It's yeah. every day, it's refresh. Uh, it's no errors. Uh, nothing it's there no maintenance so that's that's a uh was the i feel like that's the experience from again like another example of experience that you can gain from open source yeah and uh, it seems like you're just you're you're not thinking about oh i create this project for my portfolio you just genuinely want to learn you're curious to solve this problem it's like playing video games to you. Yeah, I feel that when so when I if when I started to go to the open source, mm-hmm. so it was I was curious, but I also want to build a portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you come in without experience, I feel I realized that I need to have something to. I feel you know we can talk about it later, but like when I start to apply for roles, uh, I apply for all over, and nobody reach out and yeah uh, back or aired back, and then like when you interview, it's I feel like them. It's very hard to, you know, to pass those interviews because the expectations are different and the set, the mindset is different. Mm-hmm. So I felt like if I want to kind of like overcome this struggle of getting interviews, I need to rebrand myself. Yeah. Uh, and open source was seems like I was curious about open source and it was there. It's right right there at the time that I discovered it and I got into it. It's like a it's like entering to some kind of uh, black hole. It's you're, <laughs> like you are, it's sink you inside and you cannot get out of it. And yeah. now I'm enjoying it. I don't need to, you know, I, I feel like I'm in a position that I, mm-hmm. I know the, I don't need to prove anything that I, about, you know, knowing stuff and I'm enjoying and I'm, I'm trying to learn new stuff like doing Twitter, like uh, using GitHub to, GitHub Actions to uh, shoot alerts about, stuff with images and stuff like this is like fun yeah it's real fun <laughs> yeah thanks for sharing that and uh, now um from struggling to find a job you become a manager so when you hire people uh do you look at their open source contribution if they have something i mainly look the people uh so generally not specific of talking about my work but generally i feel like that people should look at uh, the you know the first thing that you need to look at is the passion yeah. for what you're doing. Mm. You want to find people that they have a passion for 
statistics for data science for yeah. data depending on what you're looking people that doing it and enjoying it yeah I feel that's what I'm looking having open source it's a it's one way to see that if people are doing open source they probably love it uh there is other ways uh not all people are open source and you know I know many, many great people that are not open source contributors but they are still have a passion and they're doing stuff amazing mm-hmm. stuff um so there is more to it um but you know having when when nobody you know like when you're getting hundreds of resumes uh you need something in addition to the you know the this resume if you're writing a blog it's a great thing that you can see what the pers- person is doing mm-hmm. uh you're doing some code challenge or anything that yeah. people do I, I always when i see um you know junior folks that you know, doing all those core challenges. I really enjoy it mm-hmm. to watch what they're doing and they have a passion. Yeah. It's a fun thing to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, I think it's hard to measure passion, but if you showcase your work through your GitHub, you write a blog post, yeah. or your open source contribution that is uh, showing that you're passionate about what you do besides, you know, doing homework and doing exams. Um, so besides passion, what are some other things you look at when you hire people? I think it should be like a general fit for the role and culture fit. Mm. Um, you know, I always, you know, the first thing I ask is the person that I want to have coffee with in the morning when I'm coming to the office, if I would go to the office, not yeah. in pandemic, <laughs> but generally, right. uh, I feel like that's, uh, one question and diversity, mm-hmm. um, I feel like that in the beginning when I got hired, uh, we were doing time series, a lot of time series, when I realized that we also want other capabilities and you want to surround yourself with diverse people. Yeah. Um, you don't want to mimic yourself, definitely. Mm-hmm. You want to bring people that are better than you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, smarter than you and to create diversity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very important. And then when you do interviews uh, on the technical side, what are something that you feel it's okay they made a mistake or they, they don't know during an interview? What is something that you think it's, you know, coachable? I feel like that, you know, I'm, I can take example for in R and I'm sure Python is the same or Julia or any other language that you can do one thing and you can get to the same place with multiple approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like something, for example, in R, there is, you know, those groups, there is the tidyverse and there is the best R and there is the folk. I think that, you know, it's okay to do it as long as you can articulate why yeah. you're doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, for example, I sp- I'm more to, I'm gravitating, gravitating more toward, for example, the base R and I'm using, you know, tidyverse, but I'm not fanatic. Mm-hmm. And when I see people that are not, you know, sharing the same perspective like I do, as long as they can articulate, yeah, I don't expect uh, you know everybody will you know follow the same logic. People, you know, there, there is not just one way to do stuff. Yeah. Uh, so as long you can articulate why you're doing, or you can say, you know, this maybe I I don't know, but I can check, or mm-hmm. that's fine. Yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And what are something that you feel? you know, data scientists must know and if they miss certain quality, that would be like a red flag. 
I feel like that you need to, you know, the main thing is like, again, data science is a very vector. Mm -hmm. I feel like today I can, you know, I definitely think that it's a very vector. Um, so depending on the context, so if the data science that you're looking at is a data visualization, so you probably want to, if it's not a person that is expert in statistics, that's fine. Yeah. But if it's a someone that needs to build uh, models, I feel like that you, you know, if the person doesn't have background in statistics, math, or, you know, some basic, you know, linear algebra, and it might be red flag, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. People can learn on the way, people can catch, but I feel it's also the foundation that you want to have statistic, uh, math, uh, and, you know, programming, right? So yeah. in most cases, the expectation is person will mm -hmm. have some programming knowledge, not necessarily expert, but depending on the job description. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that. I think it's very important you mentioned that data science is vague and it's very broad. It's very hard for us to hit every single mark. So uh, I think it's important to, you know, look at, go to job boards like Indeed, LinkedIn, search like 20 jobs to see what is the, you know, most common required uh, skills. Uh, for example, a machine learning engineer, you need to know machine learning, you definitely need to know like R, Python, one of them, right? But if you are looking for a more kind of uh, BI type of position, yeah. um, maybe you mo only need to use the uh, uh, SQL or maybe just some data manipulation packages in Python, maybe it's not required. So it depends on where you're starting and where you uh, want to go. It's definitely important for us to learn everything. But if you're just starting or you're transitioning, I think it's important to uh, prioritize, know what you need to learn and know our time is a limit uh, is limited and uh, you yeah. know be comfortable with the idea okay those are the things i i don't want to look at right now yeah yeah, yeah. definitely you need to prioritize and mm -hmm. it's something that i always say many folks that uh reaching out in linkedin and ask me you know i'm i'm student and i'm i don't know where should i focus but always you know data science is a vague you need to think about the field it's how to make a decision. I didn't know which field I want to go. I just, yeah. you know, in my first job, I land on time series mm -hmm. and since then I'm there, but I try, you know, multiple stuff doing fraud detection, classification and prediction. And then I land on time series. But if you know what you want, go look for, like you mentioned, job description, try to understand what are the main requirements uh, try to filter like the, the really the core requirements, mm -hmm. uh, identify gaps, and go to learn them. Like you go to Coursera or yeah. any of those great resource, free code camp or any of those uh, resources that available, and you know they're there waiting. Yeah, um, that's a great advice. So you previously mentioned uh, Julia, um, and uh, how do you compare you know R, Python, Julia? So. <laughs> I, f I feel like it's always the discussion that you see in the internet, uh, R versus versus <laughs> Python or Python versus Julia. Or yeah, R it's versus, like a religion uh, war. Yeah, <laughs> I always feel like that you should use whatever 
works best for you. Mm. Uh, if you're doing statistics, probably R is, is a great tool. Today, also Python. You know, in the past, there was, in the beginning, R was born as a uh, statistic ML language, uh, but was not, didn't have the, you know, the ability to, uh, what we call the demelops. Mm-hmm. And Python came from, as a general programming language. Yeah. Uh, and didn't have a statistical, many statistical tools, but today I feel like that both are, have the same or, you know, you know, you can find uh, in both all those things. So I feel like it's more like where you feel comfortable, mm-hmm. your needs. Um, I think that Julia is the programming language of the future. If someone will come to me and ask me, I'm just, I just started, I need to pick a language. I will be in the market in two, three, four years. Go learn Julia. Mm. If you can learn more, you know, Python. But yeah. I feel like Julia is where, if I need to bet, I put my money. <laughs> so <laughs> Julia is the future. Mm-hmm. Um, why, I, why is it the future? Because the, you know, the, it's, it's solving the problems of Python and our, Python and R are slow languages. And in order to overcome that they are slow, if you want to make them fast, you need to go and write your code, your underlying code with C or C++ or Fortran. Julia doesn't have this problem mm-hmm. uh, because I'm not a computer science, so I probably will defer it to someone like Logan to explain it <laughs> uh, that was here. But um, the underlying code is all written in Julia. So you don't need to go and, you know, call other languages. It's solving the two languages problem that typically uh, you have the upper language like R and Python. And then in order to optimize your code, you are going to uh, the lower language, speak with the CPU mm-hmm. and memory with the C, C++ and so on. So that's, that's I feel like where uh, Julia is shining. One of the things that you can, in order um to think about programming language over the success of programming language, you need to have like a minimum mass, mass of people that contributing. And mm-hmm. I feel Julia is there. There is now enough people that contributing to enable the exponential growth of the language. If you go and see what happened to our couple of years ago mm-hmm. and the exponential growth in, in contribution and similar to Python, I feel Julia is now there. Um, so we meet in, for years now, I feel like that the main language for data science would be Julia. Yeah, wow. If I need to guess. Mm-hmm. You know, it still might be R and Python. Yeah. They're still great languages. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are some advantages in Julia that uh, I would say uh, go for it. I, I'm i going, so, you know, I, I'm trying for a couple of years to learn Julia, a couple of years, like uh, last two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, one of the hardest things, like you cannot start to one day come to work and say anything I'm going to write with Julia because, you know, it's a time that typically you don't have. So I'm challenging myself by translating some of the packages I write, I wrote in R to... Translate that to, to Julia. Julia. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, a, you know, one way to learn stuff. Yeah. The other thing that I'm, I'm going to uh, soon start to work on a book about time series uh, that... It's going to be in R, but I'm going to challenge myself also to write it in in Julia. Mm-hmm. And this is, I feel like, where the challenge would be because 
some of the application that you have in R, you won't find them in Julia yet. Yeah. So it's, it will be out to over, you know, to, you know, there is the gap mm-hmm. that you need to, if you need, if you want to have like in parallel tracks, but it will be fun experience to see how you write this code in, in Julia. And uh, going back to our discussion before, but Plotly, so one other reason that I, I love Plotly, that it's a agnostic, it's available in Python, Julia, mm-hmm. uh, and R. And actually the, the code in, in Julia is much more elegant yeah. for, for Plotly than in R. So it's a... Uh, another plus. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Exciting to know you're writing another book, and it's a great way to learn things and master it by, uh, you know, doing a project with it, writing a blog post or a book about it. So, um, very excited to see that. And what do you think about the future of time series? It seems like the world is going to machine learning, deep learning. Yeah, uh, that's like if you go to Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, that's where I feel like the world is going. Mm-hmm. I feel like when uh, it will be there completely when the, you know, today GPUs is expensive. I feel like in a couple of years it will be probably cheap like a CPU. Yeah. And when we get there, so I feel it will be dominant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of application always built by a lot of, companies uh for using lstm rnn and other applications and you know the traditional machine learning like xg boost when you can run it fast as you can run the traditional time series models and uh with the same level of accuracy i feel that's kind of like the future yeah what is what are some biggest challenges uh, uh in time series today you know, it's, it's always start with the data is mm-hmm. the, you know, getting the data is, yeah. um, like I was looking yesterday about getting flight data on US. Mm-hmm. I remember there was a couple of years ago, I saw in the Bureau of uh, Statistics, they had like a data set about all the flights mm-hmm. uh, with, by, you know, it was a huge database and couldn't find it. But finding the resource and the data is always been challenge. If you need to, and trying to think what could be also be challenging with time series. It's, you know, again, take it into, you know, translate business problem into time series, into data science. It's, I feel like it's also, it's a complex mm-hmm. problem to define, narrow down the problem into, you know, the data that you need to solve it. It's yeah typically challenging. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, what are some uh, struggles you have faced in your career? Um. I would start with communication skills. I mm-hmm. feel like that's something I had to adopt and learn and improve. Um, I still need to improve over time. Uh, and that's what drove me also to go to, you know, like events like this, right? Yeah. I'm now challenged myself. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not native, you know, person that can speak in this type of setting to go mm-hmm. to lecture in a meetup, to run a workshop. Yeah. It's, take me a lot of effort and mm-hmm. uh, require me a lot of, you know, capacity of, uh, yeah. uh, and that's something I always, you know, I, I've, I identified that I, I have a gap and I, you know, I'm trying to challenge myself whenever I can. Mm-hmm. Um, from, and that's was I feel like when I started, when I, you know, finished my master's and I was going to the job market, it was a challenge for me to, you know, 
my resumes will look weird uh not traditional you know like someone that graduate uh and uh different background um so that's where i feel like that you know I felt a challenge. I was lucky to get my first work at Ernst Young because I was mm-hmm. interviewed by someone that understood me. Yeah. It was very analytic. And when I, in the room with people that have uh, analytic skills, it's, you know, that's my comfortable zone. Uh, but if it was not this person, probably I would not get that job. And I realized that when I got there, that I need to improve those skills and, you know, build, uh, you know, better both to do the communication and also uh, to tell my skills in a way that I don't need to run after, for example, at that time was recruiters. Yeah. Uh, so that's how I got into all this rebranding in LinkedIn and, uh, <laughs> you know, working about mm-hmm. those communication and in certain point, it just become like a fun yeah. stuff to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like that's what drove me to go to this route. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And it's also really inspiring. You're doing the things that you think you need to improve. You're doing more of it. And for us, sometimes when we see someone uh, speak on a stage, it's not because they think they're great at speaking. Sometimes just because they are also learning. And uh, it's funny that I also interviewed Kenji. He's a data science YouTube creator. He has uh, 180K followers now. But he told me, he started creating YouTube for the same reason because he didn't think he's great at public speaking. And look at him now. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. And and I always, you know, that's my maybe like my next step is to do a YouTube mm-hmm. channel. Uh, I feel like it's more like a time problem that I don't yeah. have. But if I would have time, definitely, I feel like I would throw myself to do something that, again, like I feel like people should be able like if you want to success you need to go outside your comfortable yeah zone mm-hmm. and challenge yourself mm-hmm. yeah and then now you think it's fun to uh you know build your brand on linkedin and come to events like that you start to enjoy that and that's that means you're on the way to get better at it yeah it's always like i learn every day yeah it's literally you learn every day mm-hmm. yeah and uh, um throughout your career have you had mentors Yes, I have few, I had few um so I think that when I started to uh study at the university I met a professor from the econ that we became uh uh he was a visiting professor uh from Israel and we became friends and he kind of like guided me about you know like the academic world and he you know told me maybe you think you should think about R it's more useful than Steta. Yeah. Uh, and when I started my first job at uh, Ernst Young, this is about great about Ernst Young that they have this culture of mentoring. And I, you know, the first day that you, are, you know, when you're joining, you get like a, a peer mm-hmm. advisor, mm-hmm. which is someone, you know, the same level that give you advice from that perspective. And then you have a manager that uh, from different group that help you yeah. uh, doing mentoring. And I thought it was super useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now I don't have any anyone that I can think about, but I'm doing I'm men- mentoring other folks. I think that's my way to give back. Yeah, so I have a couple of folks that I meet with them like on a monthly basis, and you know, we are talk about their data science journey, and I'm trying to help with 
some advice or you know guidance about what they can do to you know continue their journey yeah so what what do you usually uh, tell them what's your best advice to your mentees um I think it's like you first thing you need to understand what you want to do yeah uh, that's the other thing data thing. scientist <laughs> no even data science right uh, we, we, you know we all know that we want to be data scientists but yeah. do we want to do computer vision do we want to do you know time series forecasting yeah. do you want I want to do the coolest thing <laughs> yeah and it's one of the things you know my the main limitation that we have is time mm. we want to learn so many things I have so many books yeah. and I like I it's you know like you look at it it's next to you on the table and like oh I can I can read it in in if every hour every day I would spend hour I would finish it in in two weeks right and still there for one year and think about it for like 10 projects <laughs> yeah and so you know that something important super important I learned um mainly after becoming a manager is how to scope yeah and the stuff that I'm doing in my day-to-day work, I'm trying to apply in my, you know, my mm-hmm. personal life from, you know, the perspective of the project that I'm yeah. working on, uh, you know, to define milestone, to define clear milestone, uh, to define um, clear scope, mm-hmm. uh, document it, and uh, use a lot of GitHub for this, uh, and try to stick to it. Uh, in the past, I used to do like scope creeping and I used to be very greedy about features. Like you start, oh, I'm going to build those functions. Yeah. You know, maybe you should add those, this and this. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. And then you end up that you are, instead of delivering something that you plan for yourself in two weeks, mm-hmm. end up like spending a month and a half. Um, and so like, and, and as you know, time pass, as your family and kids and stuff like this, that you, your, your, your free time is start to, yeah. Narrow down. So you want to be much more, uh, uh, you know, effective or uh, efficient about how you spend your time. So that's, that's you know, I'm trying to also uh, give this advice to other, define clear, clear goals, scope, yeah. uh, define the milestones and timeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important you mentioned even within the data science role, there are so many directions. But for people who just started or transitioned their career or you know, mid-career, they feel lost. They don't know what type of data science they want to be. What is your advice? Go explore. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, taking courses, you can get exposed to yeah. different fields. Um, you know, if you, you know, try to map like the core data science area that you, you have interest, try to take like a couple of courses, try to, you know, get your own dirty by writing some codes and experience mm-hmm. what it is to build classification model or what it is to build uh, image recognition model and so on. And then like feel where you feel, you know, what is, you know, you feel more belong to and go there. Yeah. Uh, it's okay also to be in multiple areas. Like there are um, the generalist. Mm-hmm. I feel like I started a generalist in, yeah. that's, I feel like if you're working consulting, that's the advantage. I feel like in right. starting in consulting mm-hmm. that you get exposed to multiple disciplines. You need to adapt really fast. You are moving to a new client or a new project and you have a new problem uh, that m- may or may not relate to what you did before. Mm-hmm. So that's another way to, you know, spending the first two years, three years in, you know, something that flexible, you learn a lot and then you can go and decide, I want to focus on this area and get 
you know, be the specialist. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that because a lot of people think, oh, I have to be an expert and, you know, I need to pick and become an expert. I think I see myself as a generalist. I happen to work in like A-B testing, machine learning, uh, different type of domains, and I enjoy that. I think um, it's important to have a focus. It's good to have something yeah. you're, you're good at. But some people, they just thrive at have multiple interests. Yeah. Um, they feel bored or confined when they have to spend all their energy in one area. So if you're that type of person, it's totally fine. You can still be successful. I think that could also be your strength, right? For example, a more consulting type of role or you are very specialized in some business domain and you can um, combine those areas together. And uh, I think... In companies, especially big companies, there are only limited type of roles. You have this title, data scientist, engineer. But if you think about the bigger scope of life, you don't have to have a business title to define yourself. You can, you know, work on your passion project. If you like to play video games, maybe you want to analyze some data there, even if you are, uh, you know, your title is not a data scientist. So. Uh, I really like what you what you talk about. I think not to be limited by a job title yeah. or you know some other something other people are doing. Uh, like look inward to see what you are interested in and pay attention. I think another thing I um, I find helpful is what are something that people give you uh, a lot of compliments on. That might be an area that you want to develop. That maybe you feel you feel like, oh, isn't everybody like that? But um, maybe that's your superpower. Yeah. Yeah, we all have, you know, the area that we are strong at mm -hmm. and we should leverage it to, you know, like, to overcome where we are weak, right? So that's definitely could be something we need to leverage. Yeah. Um, so before we wrap up, what is uh, something in your life or your career that you are excited about? Um, so I enjoy what I'm doing in my career. I, I, I you know, the, 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 I think I told you before that when I apply for, um, for when I was decided to move to a new role in my previous work and look for, go to the market, I applied for a couple of, uh, places. Apple was not, you know, the, you know, the, the, the immediate one yeah. that I was thinking about. Mm -hmm. And I was more excited about another role that I wanted. It was near my house uh, related to uh, food industry. Mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't get the, the job in that company. And I, then I, I got to this role at uh, Apple. And the reason I got into it was the job description was really talking about time series. It mm -hmm. was speaking the language that I felt like, you know, I felt connected. Yeah. Uh, it was a really good job description. And I was telling to my wife, yeah, I, I feel like going to apply for this. And like, she told me, like, you don't have a chance. Mm -hmm. You know, the, this, the, you know, the perception that you need to referral to. But I applied and without, you know, understanding what is Apple. And when I got there, like, it's the only thing I remember the moment I entered to um, Apple Park and I saw you know, this magic and yeah. it was like, uh, 
I think it, it changed my, my life. It's not, nothing that I build on to get. Uh, if you ask me like four years ago uh, about it, I wouldn't imagine that I would get here and where the position I'm be today. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited about what I'm doing for my you know, day-to-day to work. Excited about other stuff in family and you know, that's important stuff uh, to balance between the two. Yeah. And also excited about the open source uh, project that I see other people are doing uh, and, you know, where it's going, uh, this type of how it changed the world in many sense. So, yeah, I feel like there's more to come. Uh, and I'm looking for other other exciting stuff that I have in my list that I don't have time, like, you know, playing with Raspberry Pi yeah. and, <laughs> and this type of toys that I really, really want to do. Mm-hmm. Probably I will, uh, when my kids will be old enough, I will... Uh, spend time to teach them and yeah. for me to play with. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's, I feel like there's a lot of things happening at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very exciting. And for people who want to uh, find you or follow your future project, where can they find you on the internet? So I have a, you know, LinkedIn uh, and Twitter, I'm there. Um, I have, a, obviously, my GitHub is very active. Uh, you can find all my main projects are there. Uh, I have Instagram that focus on data visualization and mm-hmm. we didn't talk about it but much, but I... Okay, what's your Instagram uh, uh, yeah. handle? I think it's uh, Rami underscore Crispin. Mm-hmm. I don't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, we can link it in the notes. Uh, but I, I, it's uh, something relatively new that I opened, I think, a year ago mm-hmm. and it's like uh, all my data visualization stuff are there. Yeah. Uh, I love data visualization. Mm-hmm. It's, I have a weird hobbies. Uh, I got into cartography. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, you know, the art behind data visualization of maps. I'm starting a course. Wow. Uh, soon about cartography. It's not related to my work, but. What is it? Cartography. Cartography. I probably don't pronounce it correctly. It's uh-huh. the, what is it? It's data. It's the mapping. It's the, all the data visualization behind, behind mapping. Uh-huh. And if you go to Instagram, there's a lot of group of people that mm-hmm. are doing amazing stuff about, you know, visualize uh, maps. It's very inspiring and I want to learn it. So uh, that's a, you know, I in my to-do list as a hobby that's not, you know, one of the things that it's still data, but uh, it's hobby. It's not related to my work, but I super interested into. Yeah. Um, that is very exciting. And also, um, people can find you on like LinkedIn or Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm there. I'm open to connect with anyone in LinkedIn. So, mm-hmm. social media and cool. GitHub, yeah. Yeah, I will link in the notes. Um, it was great to have you on the Data Scientist Show. And I learned a lot about your career journey and uh, appreciate the tips for um, time series. Um, thank you. And if you've been enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe to the channel and give me a five-star rating. See you next time. Thank you.